welcome to the That's What She Said podcast. My name is Alexa Dat. I will be your host. Producer Kyle is out today, and we are joined by a very special guest, the four-time World Series champion, former MLB relief pitcher, and current analyst for Fox Sports Florida, Jeff Nelson is here. Yeah, Hi, Jeff. Not very special, but yeah, I'm, it's good to be here. <laughs> You're a very special guest, <laughs> especially because it's baseball season, and we love talking to baseball players not only about the specific season, but about their careers and about ha how they viewed, you know, uh, coming up in in the majors and how they got to where they where they are and just their journey in general. So, we're going to start actually all the way back at the beginning with you. You're drafted by the Dodgers in 1984, two years in the minors with the Dodgers, and then you're selected by Seattle in the Rule 5 draft in 86. Right. right. So what yeah. was that time like for you? Well, yeah, you know, I was young, the youngest guy drafted in 1984. I was 17. So my birthday wasn't until November. And, you know, I was scouted in like in 11th grade. I got lucky. Uh, Brian Jordan, actually, who played football for the Falcons, and also he was a teammate of mine, played a long time in the major leagues. We were like rivals, and they were out. I think they were scouting him, and it happened to be the Mets and the Cardinals. And then the Dodgers took me, and I played two and a half years there. I went to rookie ball out in Gray Falls, Montana, and never, you know, I've been away from home, but not, not, a whole, not, not to that part of the world out in, out in Montana. So that, that was fun, and then you, I didn't even win a game my first three years. And plus, when I graduated high school, I was 6'2", and, and about 175, only threw about 84 miles an hour, <laughs> and grew all out of high school. And I got to be 6'7", and all of a sudden I went from 84 to 94 to 95. And those, little, those years with the Dodgers, I was like a little baby giraffe. I was like uncoordinated. Everything was going. I grew so fast. And then <laughs> I got Rule 5 by uh, Seattle after my third year with the Dodgers after the 86 season. And it was one of those minor league rule fives, not like a big league rule five. So mm -hmm. they just t took you off of a, a double A roster or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you didn't have to play a certain level if they've taken you. Like in the major league rule five, you have to play in the big leagues or you get to go uh, like for half price back to the major league team. So right. it was exciting. You know, I, I didn't win a game my first three years, but then every, everything wound up figuring it out. But it was a long road to get to the big league, seven years in the minor league. So let's rewind for a second because – I, I want to know how you got to even the point where you were drafted. Did you always know that you wanted to be a baseball player? Were you always good at baseball? Yeah, you know, I played basketball, played football. I played you know, played all year round, all, all the sports, because uh, we didn't have year-round baseball, year-round basketball like they do now. Uh, so you, I grew up an Oriole fan, and, and, you know, like you, you were from Baltimore, so or the Baltimore area, and I always thought I'd have a chance to play with the Orioles. You always sit there in the backyard. We didn't have computer games and all that junk, so you had to make up your own fun or trouble on the outside, out, outside of the house. And you, you played wiffle ball, tennis ball, whatever you could do uh, to keep yourself busy, and you always imagine yourself as an Oriole. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would have a chance to do that. And I didn't know anything about the draft. I had no idea. I knew about getting I – mean, I got scouted when I was in 11th grade. And then all through my senior year, you had tons of scouts that would come up and watch you. You know, I would go to – you know, I'd play Legion ball and all that stuff. We only played like 12 games in high school. Mm -hmm. And – you know, most of the time when there was tons of scouts, I didn't do very well. You know, and there was <laughs> was one, it because of nerves? I, or I guess. You know, I have I don't know. Maybe did you could you feel them in the stands? You could see them, and you knew they were out there for you. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't one of those things that you know. I remember I, I don't know where I was. Maybe in Hershey, Pennsylvania, we were playing like Legion ball, and there was like twenty scouts out watching, and and it was uh, 
summer team, and I stunk. You know, I think I lasted like two innings. Usually in high school, we didn't, we only had two pitchers. I pitched nine of the game, twelve games, and my coaches just let me go out. As you know, I never gotten taken out, and I didn't know how many pitches I threw. You know, you wind up striking out seventeen. I think I probably walked like fifteen <laughs> and threw five hundred pitches. So nobody even, uh, you know, they never took you out. You never knew about pitch counts or any of that stuff. Right. Uh, so you know, you go and and then you finally get drafted, and we didn't know about it. They printed it in the paper, and you actually got a telegram. You know, like a Pony Express like pulled up to your door and then gave you no, a telegram you and I got drafted by Are you serious? Uh, yeah you got a telegram from Western Union my parents kept it and they uh, they framed it and it was a Western Union telegram that I got drafted in twenty six. Where is it now? Is it in round. their house? Uh, let's see. I think my mom still has it. Wow. I, yeah. I, I imagine. I don't think I have it now. But a Western Union a telegram. Western Union telegram. Kids nowadays don't even know what that is. No, no, they have no idea. Who was your favorite player in the Orioles growing up? Uh, I liked Jim Palmer, even though he was he, he was way ahead of my I mean I was really young when he when he played I got to know him I still know him he lives in kind of the, you know the Florida area with me and you know I he was started when I was first in the minor leagues he started to try to make that comeback with the Orioles I mean mm-hmm. he might have been in his 40s but he was a guy I always looked up to also Dave Winfield wasn't even didn't have any affiliation with any of the Oriole teams but mm-hmm. it was Jim Palmer you know I got to know a lot of those guys when I was in the minor leagues I used to go down to Old Memorial Stadium even though I was with another team Elrod Hendricks who was a longtime bullpen coach there also played with the Orioles he ran like the pitchers, you know, their throwing program in the wintertime. It was underneath the right field bleachers out in Memorial Stadium, which mm-hmm. was a hole in the wall. <laughs> uh, so I got to know a lot of those guys. And then going through the minor leagues, also played basketball. So I got to know a lot of the Orioles. And I would hang out with Cal Ripken at his house, played basketball. They did it three nights a week. And, and it was like a workout for them. So it was exciting. That's one of the first guys or major league players I've gotten to know. A lot of guys have stories how they became to be pitchers. Like, you know, the pitcher on the team got hurt, so they were the shortstop and just got, you know, pulled onto the mound. What was your first instinct where you knew you were going to be a pitcher? Yeah, probably because I couldn't hit. So that was probably <laughs> the first clue. Now, you know, you hit in the you hit in little league, but once you got into high school, I hit a, hit a little bit, but it was more I had a, I had a good arm. I played shortstop, I played outfield, you play everywhere. But in high school, because they wanted me on the mound all the time, and just so happened my senior year we had a lot of rainouts, so we would wind up playing just one time a week, and I threw nine of the twelve games, and you know, I I didn't get DH where I did hit. But it wasn't that great. So it was like, okay, you're going to become a pitcher. You, you can't. You don't have any power. Or I wasn't that big then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you started to develop out of high school. You got to be a little bit better hitter. And we actually uh, got to hit when I was with the Dodgers. So that was a fun part. Hmm. And then you get to the big leagues. And, you only, and I played my whole you know, 15 years in the American League. You don't get to hit at all. Right. Except interleague. And you get to take batting practice. So I became a better hitter. But <laughs> no, back then, it was, okay, you're pitching because we want to take the bat out of your hand. So when you're in high school, are you developing pitches? Or are you just throwing fast? Fastballs. Mainly just fastballs. I did throw a breaking ball, but it wasn't that great either. Mm-hmm. You know, throwing 84, nowadays you don't even get signed. I mean, you guys got guys throwing 98 are getting drafted. Back then, you know, I, I threw 84 miles an hour. And, you know, you do the all-county team and all this other stuff that everybody is, all you know, whatever. I was I was all that, but it wasn't uh, – I just threw a fastball. I didn't really know how to throw a breaking ball. Even when I went to the Dodgers I got drafted, you had – I had, you know – Sandy Colfax, Don Drysdale, you know, Johnny Padres. Uh, you know, I had all these guys trying to show me, Larry Sherry, all these big names, some of them Hall of Famers, trying to show me how to throw a breaking ball, and none of them worked. <laughs> and it wound up when I went to Seattle, 
uh, in the minor leagues, Pat Dobson, who used to play for the Orioles, he was one of the 20 game winners when they had those four 20 game winners. Mm -hmm. He's the one that showed me a, a grip on my slider. And uh, I was always through over top until until I started messing around with the three quarters around 91, 92. Wow. Yeah. So that time in the minors, it, it's almost so hard to explain because, you know, when I'm down in Port St. Lucie and I work some of the sideline games for the Mets in, uh, in, the, in spring training, you realize that there is a camaraderie with guys in the minors that doesn't exist at the major league level. So what was the minor leagues like well, for you? Well, it's funny because everybody's you're, – you're almost – you look at it and you think, okay, everybody's shooting to try to get to the major leagues. I mean, you have, you know, there's a tons of levels. I mean, you know, two rookie teams, two A-ball teams, and you have one double-A, one triple-A team, and everybody's shooting for the same thing, and that's actually getting to the big leagues. So you would think there'd be more stabbing in the back. I want this guy to do bad. I want this guy to do bad. Right. I got to get ahead of them. But you wind up being closer. You're taking bus rides all over the place. I didn't get to fly on a plane until I made it to triple-A, and only luckily, out of all the seven years, I only spent a couple of year, couple of months in AAA, so you 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 become uh, because of the bus rides, everybody is shooting for the same goal. You know now it's a little different because it's all about development. You know they don't care. Yeah, it's great if they win. You know it's great if you, you do well. Uh, you know back then you had to have really good numbers to make the major leagues because the money wasn't there. Even right. the guys that got drafted in the top ten picks or even in the number one picks, the money wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So you had to really produce in the minor leagues even to move up. I mean you had to you had to hit over three hundred. You had to have an ERA in the threes or the twos to even be considered to go up to the next level. Now I mean guys going to the big leagues with seven ERAs, it doesn't even matter. But you build a bond, and uh, because everybody's shooting for the same thing, back then it seemed like, okay, it was development, but it was also winning. Uh, you, they wanted to win you know, at every single level. The managers wanted to win. They wanted to teach you about the game and also the respect of the game, also about winning. So you become, I think, a tight-knit group. And I spent seven years in the minor leagues, and a lot of them in the same – a lot of the guys you, know, you play with – uh, you know, for a number of years in a row. And you, sometimes when you get to the big leagues, you start looking back at your first team. And my first team in 1984 in Great Falls, Montana, I was the only one out of that team that ever made it to the big leagues. Wow. And then my second year, uh, we had John Wetland, myself, and uh, Ramon Martinez. So when you look and you saw, everybody starts talking about odds about making it to the major leagues or even getting drafted, you mm -hmm. look back on your first team and very few guys ever make it to the major leagues. Are you friends with anyone from the minors? At all? Oh, you know, I, no, it was, you know, it's funny. You spend so much time with guys mm -hmm. and, y you know, you lose, you don't lose, you lose track of them. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a couple of guys that I played minor league ball when I've gone to, I, I played double A in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the, my catchers that used to uh, play there, he actually lives there now. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> against Williamsport. But he, I, I, I did a signing. I went back for... Uh, some uh, now they're a short season team, I think maybe for the Diamondbacks or Rockies, and I did something for them, and he was actually there, so I got to see him. Uh, winter meetings, you know, you go see the winter meetings, a big family right. union. You see guys, whether you're playing in the big leagues, I've seen ex-teammates that I haven't seen in years, and now you see them once a year in wherever the city is. Any sort of rookie hazing or anything that you guys did that you remember joking well, around did. or having a good time? Yeah, you know, it, it was then. It's it's different again now, but you know, back then. Uh, we had, I mean, I had Randy Johnson, Jay Buhner, Ken Griffey Jr. Luckily, I played cards, so they had a rule that rookies couldn't come back past the 20th row on the, on the uh, you had to be invited back. You couldn't even use the bathroom in the back. You had to use up the front. Okay. And if you played cards, you were good because you, you got to uh, be, be with the veterans. So I played cards, so I kind of mixed in a little bit easier. But in the beginning of the year, I was the only rookie. 
uh, for Seattle, and we stunk, you know. And so I got dressed up twice. I mean, they dress up the rookies nowadays. They have they, they go through the roof with some of these outfits. <laughs> so I got dressed up twice, and uh, they make you. I, I think I put on. Uh, they we were out in Oakland and, and at the old Coliseum, and back then you had to walk through the fans to get to your bus. Mm-hmm. And I they went to San Francisco and got like this pink kimono pajama thing and they put it on me so it didn't look it didn't look that great and then you have to sit up front sometimes they'll make you serve the plane uh, but I was the only guy and then at the end of the year they always had they had a thing they didn't have all this fancy stuff that they have now they would take your suits because at getaway day you're always wearing suit and uh September call-ups they would make sure they would get them and you'd have to wear your uniform home or they would would dress you up so after Mm -hmm. that I started doing it to the rookies. You know, I, I said, okay, now it's my turn to get everybody Because you back. knew what it felt like to oh, be the only rookie. Oh, I knew what it felt rookie. like, and I wanted to make sure that everybody got it. And then we got a little bit, you know, it got a little bit interesting. You started getting Hooters outfits. I remember when Ichiro uh, was a rookie. I mean, technically, he was a rookie in the major leagues. And this was back in 2001. We had these guys wear Hooters outfits. That's amazing. And we dressed up uh, some guys when I was in Seattle, like the village people, and they had to walk. That We would, like, pull the bus over in San Francisco, and they had to walk maybe, like, 10 blocks to the hotel. <laughs> so that's the fun part. Now you see these guys, uh, you know, now they're wearing matching outfits. You know, I remember Alex Rodriguez. We dressed him up in, uh, it was either 90, 94 maybe, in, in a wedding dress. So, you know, that's awesome. A lot of people don't like it, right. but you know, it's part of the game and you know, oh, here we go. And, and you try to make sure that they don't know it's coming. You know, sometimes it leaks out a little bit, but you got to make sure they know it's not coming. And it's, it's a fun part about the game. You mentioned playing with Ken Griffey Jr. What is, what does he like to be around? Mm, you know, he's by far the best athlete that I've or best baseball player I've ever seen, you know, ever played with, ever played against. Uh, we lived pretty close, so we were pretty close in the wintertime. You, you know, uh, Brandy Johnson, Jay Buhner, and Griffey, I was lucky enough to hang around those guys quite a bit, even in the off season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would do ride four-wheelers, go golfing, jesky, whatever it was, and we all lived in Seattle within about a mile of each other. Uh, he was, for as far as a teammate, he was great. Mm-hmm. He, you know, maybe to the public, he's a little standoffish. Uh, he's great for the kids, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, some guys just don't like, you know, people coming up to him or whatever. But as far as a teammate, he was great. He was one of the fastest guys. Being in the bullpen, he would get dressed faster than anybody and be out the door before sometimes the bullpen guys would even be in the locker room. Wow. But for someone, you know, I don't know if it hurt him. I mean, obviously he's a Hall of Famer. You would think, okay, this guy probably could have put up some numbers and, and broken maybe Barry Bonds' record for mm-hmm. all-time home runs. You know, he didn't pick up a bat or a ball until the first day of spring training. He didn't care who pitched. He didn't do anything. He was just that good. He was the only guy I ever could know, that I would ever know that would be able to do that. So there was nothing he did over nothing, the winter. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything during the, you know, he might have did a little weightlifting every once in a while. Uh, but, you know, spring training, he would shag flies. You know, he'd be out there doing some drills. But once the season started, that, you know, I loved power shagging. That was my running. And, and when I started in Seattle, he it was great there i was like left center field he never was out there he would hit every once in a while he would go out maybe catch a couple fly balls and then he would take it into the locker room but the first time he picked up a bat and ball was spring training he never did anything in the winter time he was just that good and he didn't care you know they have scouting reports all this stuff about if a relief pitcher comes in uh this guy didn't care he he didn't want to know who was pitching he didn't know what he didn't want to know who they had or or what kind of pitches they had he was just that good, and nobody else can do that. I don't think anybody can ever go through a winter without picking up a bat and a ball to get ready for spring training. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's really crazy. It makes him, you know, 
one of the guys that just stand out in the game and like we've talked about and like people talk about in the media just his swing is so right. beautiful it's well, such you a see, gorgeous i don't swing. know if you ever see it um if you look on the back of uh guys uniforms some of them especially the nike ones there's a figure on the back of the uniforms, and it's somebody swinging the bat. You'll see the big like loop, and that's Griffey. And yeah. nobody ever, you nobody ever realizes it, but that's his swing. Right. And he's represented. He was been represented by Nike for years. I mean, ever since he started. And that's uh, that's him. That's his figure on the back of guys' pants. So when you guys are messing around, when it's you and Randy Johnson, you guys are jet skiing on the golf course. Who's the class clown? Who's the guy that picks up the tab? Who's the guy? You know, who fits in what well, I roles? I make sure I don't pick up the tab when <laughs> I hang around them because they were by far more veteran, more of a veteran player than I was. Uh, but you know, you always want to when you break into the big leagues. You you know, you wind up. Jay Buhner and and Randy Johnson were the toughest to get to know. If you could get past them and get that, their acceptance, then you knew that you were you were good, and, and, or you were in their group or in the big leagues. And I was always one of those guys that. Uh, you know, protected guy. You know, if my guys got hit, I would be the one coming in and drilling the next guy. So that kind of wins them over as well when they nice. know, okay, hey, you're going to protect us. Um, you, you know, Jay, I became I became one of the biggest practical jokers once I, I got to be more of a veteran guy. Uh, it took a while, but I think it was Jay. You know, Randy, Randy and Junior are are pretty you know even keeled, and and Randy. Uh, if you d if you don't know him, you kind of really want to stay away from him because he looks like he's a you know very he seems intimidating like a very scary guy. guy. So on his starter days, you know everybody stays away from him when he starts. But you know I I think it was mainly uh, it was Jay. You know he was the kind. Him and Norm Charlton were uh, you always had to watch those guys. Okay, we had Michael Morse on the podcast recently, and he was telling us about Ichiro Suzuki and how he gave him a bat humidor, and also how he has a big picture of Snoop Dogg, like a big giant yeah. mural of Snoop yeah. Dogg in his house. And I was asking him, I was like, well, he's always got a translator with him, but how much English does he actually know? And Morse was like, a lot more than you would think. Yeah, you know Michael Morse is a great guy. We, he, I was with him. Uh, in Seattle a little bit when he came over from Chicago he went from shortstop and went out to uh outfield mm -hmm. and uh, a great guy but Ichiro I mean I started with him in 01 and he was a guy that he wanted to blend in with the team so well and he wanted to be one of the guys most of the guys from ja Japan have translators uh, mm -hmm. Sasaki was one of those our close was our closer out there and he still had a translator Spoke a little bit of English, and obviously the Americans wanted to know some Japanese words. Not all, not all of them. So you know, very good words. I mean, a lot of the bad ones. <laughs> but uh, Ichiro came. He didn't want an interpreter. He wanted to try to do it on his own. Now, right. when the media came up to talk to him, at first, I mean, he didn't know a whole lot of English words. So he went, he had to do it. He's a very proud guy, and even now today, he'll still still use an interpreter because I think he feels that he doesn't want to mess up the English language. Right. But as far as English, he, he now he speaks really well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it took him a while, but I think it impressed us because it want, made us want to know as a teammate more Japanese, but that he, you don't separate yourself when you, have an, when you don't have an interpreter. When guys come over and they have an interpreter, you kind of separate yourself from the rest of the team because it's hard to, for us to communicate to them. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they don't want to communicate with us. But he immediately said, ah, no interpreter, I'm part of this team, I want to learn the Engl English language, baseball is universal anyway, mm -hmm. uh, and we wanted to learn his language. So it made it easier for him to become part of the team and not accepting him, but, uh, you know, knowing that, hey, he's not going to be separated by everybody else. When you look at his career, 3,000-plus hits, what comes to mind? Well, you know, he came over, and it took him, you know, as far as a hitter, uh, 
this guy was on. I mean, he reminds you of like a little slap hitter from a softball, uh, you know, softball because the girls are from the left side. They're running out of the box before they even hit the ball. Well, that was him. You know, he was running out of the, the box before he even hit the ball, and he was so was a big fast drag down the line. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he beat it out all the time. So, you know, he he was amazing in that he was such a good bad ball hitter. I mean, it was tough to strike him out. Uh, he, you know, he seemed like he had such great hand-eye coordination more than anything you've ever seen. A great defender. But I remember coming, him coming up and being in spring training for the first time and Lou Pinella, I mean, he was terrible in spring training and, and because nobody really knows. There's a lot of hype that comes with the Japanese players. Not a whole lot come over here and have, a, have any success. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have, you've had a few as of you now. Um, but by far, Ichiro's been one of them at Sui for the Yankees. But Ichiro's probably had the most success and probably the first one uh, to come over and be in the Hall of Fame, definitely be in the Hall of Fame. But he was terrible in spring training. And Lou really was, okay, who is this guy? We knew, him, knew he had great defense because he could catch the ball, still had a great arm. Right. Uh, but as far as hitting, you know, he never pulled the ball. So they finally pulled him aside and said, hey, you got to pull the ball. So then he, then he started hitting it. And as far as like a home run hitting contest, everybody said, this guy hits bombs in spring in, in during batting practice. He would hit him and Wade Boggs. Nobody ever realized those guys would win home run hitting contests if they wanted to. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Especially with his size and, and everything that comes along with it. Okay, so you have success with the Mariners, and then uh, the Yankees call, and you go to the Yankees. Yeah. What is that transition like for you? Well, it, trans- it, it happened when I was on a Mariner caravan out in Alaska. So, you know, when most teams have caravans where they're promoting their team during the wintertime, and usually they'll take the young young kids or the young rookies to do all these trips but I lived in Seattle and I loved doing them and you go all parts when you're in the, with the Mariners they they uh they try to reach out to a, bro- a broad area I mean we go to Idaho we went to Canada we go to down to uh, Portland Oregon uh we would go to Western you guys like Washington. missionaries you're recruiting said, people to be fans well, of the team you, yeah you're like promoting a team because you their fan base is so wide right and you had to get out there whether it was radio stations you go to schools uh, so they always went to Alaska, and it happened to be 95 was the last year that they went to Alaska. So Dan Wilson and myself, we went on the Alaskan trip, and I was in Juneau, the capital, and I got a call from Bob Watson and Woody Woodward, the GM from the Mariners, said that I was traded. Going into that year, it was Mike Blowers, Tino Martinez, myself, were all ar- arbitration eligible, and they said, okay, we're, gonna, we're only going to be able to – we have to trade one of them. Mike Blowers got traded to the Dodgers right away, so Tino and I, after being in the playoffs for the first year, thought, well, hey, we're coming back. But sure enough, we got packaged in the same deal coming to New York, and I got called, and I finished the, I finished the last day of the caravan because they asked, oh, you want to keep doing it? I'm like, I only have one day as a Yankee uh, promoting the Mariners. <laughs> so, you know, you go. I always loved New York. Always pitching. I always loved pitching in Yankee Stadium as a visitor. It never intimidated me. I loved the fans. I loved the city. Uh, so you're going to another first-place team, so it was pretty exciting. But when you actually get the call and you're moving across country – you're going from a one organization to another that, and they couldn't have been different in that particular time only because it's the Yankees and you, I mean, it, it is the Yankees. So when what's going through your mind when that's the situation? Well, it wasn't that big of a deal because I hated them growing up and Whoa. I hated them. I, you know, I didn't like the Yankees when I played against them because they carried themselves in such a way until you really put on the pinstripes and you figured out, okay, this is why they're so cocky and so confident because they win all the time. Right. But I had Lou Pinella, you know, I had Lou Pinella as a manager and, and he was all New York. You know, everything that came with being a Yankee, he was, uh, as far as being intimidated, as far as, uh, 
uh, intimidating as far as, you know, never look in the locker room or the dugout if you're not doing well on the mound because he'll let you know. You know, he wore his feelings on the sleeve. And if you could play for him, it was easy. to. It became easier to play for New York because he had put so much pressure on you or and put so much expectation on you that, you know, you should – basically testing you if you're going to belong in the big leagues. So I really love playing for Lou. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a tough manager, but, you know, I felt that he got me ready and to play in New York, also to play in the big leagues. It's a, it's a tough place to play back, even back then. A little bit easier now uh, because of the pressures, I think, are a lot less in some, in some instances. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think he got me ready for playing in that city. And, you know, it never intimidated me anyway. Uh, but and plus you're playing for you're playing with great players and then Joe Torre he he came over in that first year but you know you're playing you're playing with guys that uh, you know you get the opportunity to play with some of the best in in all of baseball. So you didn't feel any pressure. There's always pressure, no matter what team you're with here. There's always pressure. Right. Uh, maybe, you know, obviously more with the Yankees because the expectations of the 95 was the first year that they went back to the playoffs in so long, and we knocked them out. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Steinbrenner put unbelievable pressure on the players. He expected the best out of them. The media was ruthless. You, mm -hmm. you know, you have you go. I go from Seattle where there's two or three guys covering us to about 30 in New York. Uh, so the pressures are through the roof. The fans, I mean, old Yankee Stadium, the fans, you know, they're the little kids in the first word weren't mom and dad. It was like, you are a bum and you stink, <laughs> and other things like that. But it was uh, that They pressure, raise them right here. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, that pressure is through the roof. I mean, you, they, yes, the Yankees bring more pressure and still more pressure than any other place you're going to play. But I liked it. You, you know, I, I thought it was great. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be perfect. And you kind of want to ignore some of the bad times or get over some of them. You have to get over them quickly or you won't succeed here. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed it. You know, I think I enjoy it more now that I'm retired. And, and you know, you get to walk around the city. And the Yankees, besides 09, really haven't won. So you still, still can, uh, you know, go on that on what we did in those mid-90 years. So that's right. still fun. Do you remember any sort of interaction with the media, with the New York media that you had that was super? You always stick your foot in your mouth. I always did. You know, for some reason, you always had, you always had, I never, one thing they said, don't read the papers and don't listen to these shows. You did both. I did both. I, no, I actually <laughs> no, you never, didn't? I didn't. You know, when I opened up the paper, I never read the articles. I knew, I knew who would write. Uh, you knew who was the controversial writers. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew who was going to write every single word that you said. And you knew the ones that were going to pick out certain things that you said to make you to make you look bad. So I didn't read any of that. I didn't listen to the sports radio stations. And plus, at I didn't, all? No, really? not at all. I didn't. I, I looked at the box scores to see how some of my friends did. I always wanted to see, okay, what place are we on? I was a big scoreboard watcher, even from day one. Uh, opening day, I wanted to make see see where we we stood. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, every once in a while, I like to see your name in the paper. I don't like to see L's by my name. So, <laughs> and plus, I did, I already knew if I did bad, I didn't want to read it again the next day. Right. But it was you have guys. You know, there was one time in two thousand. Uh, I was a little disappointed that I didn't. I mean, it was awful hard for a reliever to a middle reliever, a setup guy, to make the All Star team. I had a very good first half. I thought, okay, my manager's going to take me. It didn't happen. I said a couple things that uh, really, you know, wound up coming out like I, I didn't like Joe uh, Tory, but which is totally wrong, and and we laugh about it still today. So you have to go back in the locker room because they're going to write it, and you have to go back in his office and say, listen, this is not how it came out. And he goes, I understand. We had a little talk about it, uh, but you're always, you know, I learned from all those mistakes that I made by talking to those guys. I remember. 
uh, you know, between the Cleveland Indians, we were, we made the playoffs, and it was between Cleveland and someone else to play in the division series or the ALCS, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And they uh, they came up to me and I said, well, who would you rather play? And I was like, well, I mean, during the year, I mean, we had a better record against the Indians. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they make it poster board in, in their locker room. <laughs> well, Nelson, you know, says they're going to beat Cleveland. So it, it, the way you, you say things, you know, you'll really have to watch. Now it's gravy. I mean, Mr. Steinmetter, I think, controlled a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And I think the media was a little tougher. Now they're easy. I mean, I read some of these things and it's like, you know, I, where were where were you? Why weren't you this, this easy when I played? Now it's it's nothing. Mr. Starmetter's not around, and you guys are just giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. Well, now that you're part of the media, do you see it from a different perspective? I do. It's funny that you have some of the media guys that used to dog you in the paper, and uh, they're they're like your friends now. Right. And I'm like, well, not, anyone specific? Not totally. Well, Joel Sherman was a guy that was really controversial, and uh, you know, all of a sudden you're part of part of his world. And, you know, he became, I was like, wow, I mean, you were never like that when I played. And I would tell him, I said, what the, what the heck? And, I mean, because you knew, you knew the guys that would write controversial stuff and the ones that were pretty decent. Right. Uh, but it is different. You know, now that you do broadcasting, I'm, I never dog players. I mean, you always, because it's a hard game. I mean, you, you know, I never, I, I say what, if they don't do well, I'll, I'll, I'll say why they didn't do well. I don't, I don't ever say, hey, this guy doesn't belong. At least on TV, I'll do it off the air. No. Okay. You'll do it behind their back. Yeah, behind. <laughs> That's better. Uh, during that Yankees time, during the time that you were with the Yankees, because they were so successful, was it a different atmosphere than, let's say, other teams, other organizations that you were in? You know, stricter, harder to feel comfortable because it's just it, – there's like this winning mentality and that's it. Well, you had to love that. I mean, if you play this game to win and you play – Everybody, but it was fun. It was, having fun. Oh, it was a whole. It was a lot of fun because you wanted to get to the playoffs. I mean, we got to the World Series in '96. It was the first time for everyone. I mean, '95 mm -hmm. was the first time that we, you know, we played the Yankees in the first, you know, that division series. That was the first year for the division series. So you get a taste of that. Uh, you know, when you first make it, you're just happy to be in the big leagues, and then you want to stay, and then you want to get a taste of the playoffs. And once you get a taste of that, you don't want that to end. Uh, you know, we got beat by Cleveland in 97, and that was disappointing. I mean, with the Yankees, you're, you're never complacent about, hey, if you win one World Series, hey, that's good. That should cover you for a while. But, you know, with the Yankees and when Mr. Steinmetter was around, he wanted to win every single year. And he kept – he kept – he would keep, uh, you know, he would keep like the – the 15, uh, 15 guys or 20 guys around, and then he would add. You know, one year, I mean, 90, 98, we won 125 games. And you're right. thinking, okay, everybody's coming back. Next thing you know, we bring in Roger Clemens in 99. You know, David Wells goes, a lot of the key, some of the key guys. And this was all in spring training. You know, he just liked to mix it up. He says, okay. He says, I think these guys are done. I want to bring in some other ones. Um, but the pressure, the pressure, there's the pressure because the pressure is always about winning. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Steinmetter made sure that he kept the guys around or he would sign guys uh, that were used to that pressure or liked that pressure because the expectation level was far exceeded any other team uh, because of the history, because you're in New York, the, you know, the biggest and greatest city in, of all sports. And, you know, as a Yankee, you know, compared to the Mets or anyone else in this city, you expect you were expected to win all the time. And, and if you didn't get to the World Series, I mean, Derek Jeter's famous for saying everybody's like, oh, you know, that's a bunch of whatever. But it's true. If you don't get to the World Series and win the World Series, it's a disappointing season. Right. Luckily, you know, out of my six years, I went five times and we lost one against the Marlins. But uh, it was uh, it was a good run. And so you didn't have a lot of disappointment. 
So for you going into that, let's talk about that that 98 season. Going in, did you know that you guys were going to be as good as you were? No, well, we knew we had to get make up for last year because mm -hmm. everybody wasn't happy about getting knocked out. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, everybody thought we were going to go to the World Series again. Uh, we started, you know, then the schedule was different because we played everybody an equal amount of time. It wasn't like, oh, we're playing 19 times against everybody in the East. We played everybody the same, which I actually liked. Mm -hmm. uh, we still had interleague play. They still mixed that in, but we made sure and the schedules, we, we played everybody the same amount of times. And we'd always go to each city twice, and they would come to New York twice. And we always wound up starting on the West Coast. And for some reason, Mr. Steinmetter didn't, you know, the Yankees typically didn't do very well on the West Coast, and we didn't start out well out there. After getting beaten 97, we went out and we got swept uh, by the Angels three games. Next thing you know, because the papers are crazy, they start Joe Torrey's getting fired. The Yankees aren't having a good year. I mean, we're 0-3. Mm -hmm. uh, we started out 1-4. and that year and we wound up winning 114 games and you know during that year and it's uh it was a remarkable season you know I, the expectation level is so great in new york that you expect to win every game or you expect to get to the world series but when you start out one and four and all the papers are going crazy luckily we didn't see any of them because we were out on the west coast but right, right. finally when we win then we win and we turn things around what at what point during the season were you like this is it this is the magical season that we knew we had coming into spring training and that we were going to be this successful? Well, we had a great team. Uh, we knew, again, you don't, I don't think you think, as a Yankee, you don't think of yourself as, uh, or as, as your team that, oh, you know what, we have such a great team, we're just going to walk on the field and win everything. But, you know, you with the Yankees, once you step in between, you, in between those lines, you had guys that that uh, cared about the game and all their, their they were 100% about winning all the time and whatever each person could do to try to help the team win that night they would do and we didn't have you know we had such a deep team you know that year I think we had Scott Brocious with our third baseman this guy batted ninth had 99 RBIs or 98 RBIs mm -hmm. We knew we had a great team, but we also, once we stepped on the field, felt we could beat anyone. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that carried over. And, and that was something special about the guys on our team that, you know, nobody had doubts. Nobody said, oh, you know what, I don't know if we're going to beat this team. Or, oh, you know what, we're facing Pedro Martinez today. I think guys loved that. Even though Pedro Martinez, you know, a lot of times beat us. Right. Uh, you know, guys loved that, uh, you know, we felt we could beat anyone at any time. For you personally, for that season, what was that season like for your success? Uh, you know, it's same, you, you know, you come in and, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, what can I do today to help this team win? And you look on, I was always a guy who watched the lineup and I looked up on the scoreboard. I knew the times that I was going to come in and, you know, Mel Stoudemire, pitching coach and Joe Torrey came to Mike Stanton and myself. He said, listen, you know, whether we're four up or four down, you guys are going to be in the game. And, you know, it wasn't worry about – they never worried about back then about saving guys' arms. I mean, they would get you up as much as possible. So you liked it. I didn't want to sit on the bench. I wanted to be right in the middle of the fire all the time. Mm -hmm. And you, you – uh, you know, you wanted to do your job. And, and in those middle innings, they were, they were key innings. And uh, you felt like, okay, if I can come out and do my job and help my team win, then, then it was a, a successful time. But for me, I always wanted to be in the tough situation, so I always had to do well. I mean, I, if I started stinking up, then I'd be out watching or going somewhere else. But you, you love the, the pressure and you love that part of the game, and I wanted to make sure I was in it all the time. What was it like being in the bullpen with Mariano Rivera? Yeah, he's great. You know, he was quiet. You know, he would come out in the seventh inning like the country club closers usually do, get his massage and sleep and all that stuff until <laughs> he had to come out. 
Uh, but you never really saw the personality until there was a blowout when we knew we weren't getting the game. Mm-hmm. And then, then, then it was crazy. You know, for the first five innings, he didn't do any of the reindeer games out there because it was so <laughs> we. There was only a couple of places in major leagues where the bullpens were down the line, mm-hmm. and we couldn't really act up. But every place else, we were behind the home run fence, and nobody could see us unless a TV camera. Back then, they didn't have all the TV cameras that they have now. Uh, they wouldn't catch us, so we would do everything and through the first five innings, and that was kind of the magic number. That you know, that's a starter. Usually, when after the fifth inning, then you start watching their pitch count or if they start getting in trouble, and we had to focus a little bit. But right, right. once there was a blowout, and we knew we weren't going to use Mariano or, or Stanton and myself weren't going to be in the game when the you know the setup guy, I mean the uh, long guys or the mop up guys come in, then that's when you saw the true personality. It was fun. Who had the most? I mean, you were with the core four, so who had the most personality out of Jeter, Pettit, Posada, and Mo? Oh wow! Um, probably Posada and Jeter. You know, Andy was uh, Andy was a reserve guy, but he was, you know, he let loose in the days that he didn't pitch. Uh, Rivera again, he didn't do anything until after it was a blowout. <laughs> you know, he was he was fun. Uh, uh, Jeter, Jeter had a great personality. He, he was fun to mess with. He was fun to be around. And Posada was, you know, the same way. You know, we weren't big on team meetings, but, you know, every once in a while we would have them. And Joe always, uh, Tori would always call on Posada. You know, David Cohn was basically the main guy to go to. But, you know, I don't know. I think they all had their own personality in a certain way, but it's probably Jeter was the most outgoing. When you look back at the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry, probably at its most vicious when you were with the Yankees. Now, it's kind of like, hey. Yeah, because you play each other. When you when time. you retire, we throw a big party for you. Yeah. When you retire, we throw a big party. I mean, we got to the extent that it's we like, need, is it know. even Is there competition anymore? It's no, like everyone's. No, because they play each other too many times. Because, you know, back then we had equal amount of times. We play the Red Sox the same amount of times that we play the Seattle Mariners. So, you know, and we didn't. We would see each other in the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. and then we wouldn't see each other again until the end. And, you know, so it made the rivalry a little bit better. And plus, the media hyped it all up, and then right. you had the fans that would hype it all up. I mean, I, you know, most when we would go to Boston, we would about ha- we'd have half Yankee fans, half Red Sox fans, and you would hear, you know, "Let's go Yankees," and then you'd hear the, you know, their Red Sox chant. And most of them would be, you know, NYPD, and then the fire department would come up on their off days and fill <laughs> the stands, and we'd see all those guys out after the game. Uh, but, you know, it was in the beginning, you know, we didn't even talk to them when we stretched. You know, now you might as well have both teams stretched together because they're all, you know, talking and doing they're whatever. They're chummy. They're best friends. Yeah, we used to have something you couldn't fraternize. You, you know, if you wanted to do that, take them out to dinner afterwards. You know, even though baseball is one big family, you're still competing against them. And Mr. Steinmer is also one of the guys that put a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis on, hey, these guys are your enemies. They want to beat you. They right. want to take you know, food off your table or whatever it is. So, you know, we always wanted to beat them because, I, you know, there was three teams that Mr. Steinmer wanted us to beat all the time. That was the Mets and the rivalry. Red Sox, you couldn't lose against them. Mm-hmm. And because he was in Tampa all the time, you couldn't lose against the Rays, and they weren't really that good when they first came up. But the rivalry was great because we didn't play these guys as much as they do now. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing them 19 times. You're going to each place three times. 
you'll you'll play him on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at your place, and then you see him the following Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at their right. place. So and it's they go too out close. to dinner afterwards. They hang right. out. They're at each close. other's houses for I, holidays. I don't like the schedule, and and it, I think it. I think it takes away from all the rivalries. You know, it's definitely taken away from the Yankees-Red Sox. It's a little bit of a hit. Um, Jeff, we end every podcast with an embarrassing story. And I actually kind of found one for you. I don't know that you find this embarrassing. It was actually – it ended up being an amazing story. But it was uh, a little bizarre. You had bone chips removed from your elbow. Oh, yeah. And then you put them in a jar and walked around the clubhouse with them. Yeah, well, And then sold them on eBay. Well, it wasn't me. What was this? It was uh, I was in Seattle, and when I went back and went back in 01, 02, 03, I started doing a radio show. Mm-hmm. And, and while I was playing, and in 2002, I had bone chips in my uh, in my elbow, and I went to get them out. And it was right during the middle of the season, so I had them. And the and the team doctor says, "Hey, hey, do you want them?" I said, "Yeah, let me have them." And they put them in a jar enough for formaldehyde or whatever it was. And uh, I did my radio show. I took them in. I showed uh, I showed this guy. The guy's name Softy Mahler, Dave Mahler showed him he goes what are you gonna do with them i'm like i'm not gonna do anything with them what i mean i'm gonna throw these things away he says oh let me keep them well back then there was a running back for the university of washington named curtis curtis uh, williams and he there was a play in the beginning of the year that he wound up uh getting paralyzed mm-hmm. and you know they wanted to do what they did a charity and did a fund the curtis williams fund uh, so there's been other things that's been on eBay. Says, and so the radio station, can we take these and put them on eBay? We're going to sell them. I had to fill out some information, no cloning or any of that stuff. Oh, my god! Because uh, so, you're essentially selling a body part. Right, exactly. And they put them on. It got up to like $25,000. And then finally eBay pulled them and said, hey, you know what? You can't sell body parts on there. I mean, there's been somebody's, <laughs> I think, uh, Trevor Hoffman sold gum or somebody used gum, and there was some like hair from somebody else. Oh, that's amazing! Uh, so they wound up, uh, you know, but I didn't do will it. buy that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's weird. Whoever's going to buy that, whatever it is, but it got up to twenty some thousand dollars. And wow, I got calls from radio. I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, hey, what's this? I said, well, it wasn't me. I gave it to the radio <laughs> station, and they did whatever they wanted to. I had nothing to do with it. Matt, the team was in Toronto, and they're hearing this on on the news, and they're laughing, and they're and you know, front office is calling me. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and then finally, they pulled them off, and then they put it on their own website. I think they got like two grand for them. I don't even know what the heck they did with them, but it was gross. I Whoa. mean, but they were big. The biggest one was like the size of my pinky nail. Wow, that yeah, was pretty embarrassing, but it was funny at the same time. Well, it's everybody funny thinks too. it was I that I did it. I said I didn't have anything to do with this thing. It was a radio station. I still feel like you had something to do with it. Yeah. Um, and they came from your elbow. But it was so. going to a good cause. It was going to a good cause. It wasn't which like wide I was full circle. No, it's a it's a great story. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Where can we catch you? Where can fans catch you? Well, now that the Marlins aren't in it, they can't catch me at all. But MLB.com, where the postseason starts, is the greatest time of the year. Great. Thank you so much, right, and you. let's go get a snack.